Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I am not going to shut down the economy, period. I'm going to shut down the virus. That's what I'm going to shut down. You knew if you lived in Philadelphia, unless you're do not, that's an Italian expression for stupid. Unless you're stupid, you knew that a lot of people were coming over from Camden to vote. Yes, at the end of the day, when every legal vote is counted, when every recount is finished, and every legal challenge is heard, people will accept what the results are. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. To prosecute or not to prosecute? Yep, that's the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of Trump's outrages or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by prosecuting, end them. This is not just reflexive Hamlet. It's really about the size of it when it comes to discussing Joe Biden's dilemma. Should Biden, when he takes office, preach healing Should he urge people to suffer the slings and arrows of Trump's outrages? Or should he take up arms in the form of investigations and federal prosecutions and by opposing Trump, end him? Believe it or not, this dilemma indeed has two horns. And I know you'll expect me on Trumpcast to want to express bloodlust, and I definitely have it. And I certainly want to entertain the delectable prospect of seeing evil punished and punished in a way that flamboyantly hurts and is shameful and public. That's the reasoning behind the pillory or the guillotine. But there are more measured considerations for the stature and prestige of American laws and for the rule of law itself. What are laws if not binding on everyone? What are laws if they're perceived or used only as instruments of politics and and torture? Laws need to bind every single person, as we are a nation of laws, not men. I mean, not women either, but that goes without saying. So laws need to bind Trump. That's that reasoning. And then there's the case for letting state prosecutions take their course. That's not the Biden stuff. Biden could stay free of that. And Biden could also lay off the federal prosecutions on the grounds that it's unseemly and gives the appearance of vindictiveness or might inevitably be tainted by vindictiveness to sick the DOJ on Trump. That could set a terrible precedent for presidents investigating their rivals and predecessors. Also, would it even work? We had Jack Goldsmith on the show last week saying that Trump shudder could slip the knot of a federal prosecution and investigation again. My guest today to talk about all of this is Jonathan Mahler, a bright light at the New York Times and the author of a cover story in the New York Times magazine this week about Trump's crimes and Biden's dilemma. The piece is mandatory reading for anyone trying to sort out what the options are from here on in for holding the outgoing Trump syndicate accountable and beginning to get the beleaguered country on its feet again. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to Trumpcast. Thanks for having me, Virginia. 
I can't believe you're only here for the coda of the show. But that's (laughs) like, but then you're in some kind of sweeper role to mix metaphors. Better late than never. Better late than never. This piece does so much cleanup work. This is your cover story in the New York Times Magazine. You managed to go over basically every element of Trump's criminal liability. It was kind of like the legal autopsy was was sort of part of the idea. It's amazing because usually when I hear people summarize things, I want to add, but you forgot about this emoluments detail, <laughs> you know? But no, there's nothing. I think no stone is unturned in this, which is amazing. Um, I just want to quickly talk about the the cover, the magazine cover, which even though there are no newsstand sales now, no one really thinks about magazine covers. This is one of the greatest covers of the of the Times Magazine ever. Should we describe it? Yeah, it's very cool. It's basically a file folder that suggests um, an official, maybe Department of Justice file folder. And up in the right-hand corner, under under a paperclip, is a little uh, headshot of Donald Trump, just a just like a little like kind of stamp-sized headshot of him. Yeah, yeah. And then um, and the headline is "Individual One," which was, of course, the term that was used to refer to him in the the Michael Cohen indictment, mm-hmm. the unindicted co-conspirator, individual number one. And then there's, um, you know, then the sort of headline is just kind of typed out on a file folder. It also has like a rubber stamp. Yeah. And, oh, and the last thing is that the magazine, so the, the, the New York Times magazine kind of title and the magazine itself is like inside the file folder. You can see it just kind of peeking out of the top. So <laughs> it's like, right. Like your article might be part of the discovery, <laughs> exactly, um, which exactly. Seems, which is super cool. And then it has like, I mean, it's probably not the way a DOJ folder looks now because it looks like it's from Watergate era. It has like <laughs> a little totally. stamp on it and whatever. <laughs> anyway, yeah. it is worth looking at. And it does get to how, you know, essentially you have presented a kind of discovery in this piece and just going through all Trump's criminal misdeeds or suggested alleged misdeeds is a lot of work. It's also yeah. a great public service because <sighs> these things are, have been so complicated. And as you point out, part of the reason that it's so hard to imagine what a prosecution would look like is that these crimes are meant to be unintelligible. Yeah, You know, like Trump talks about shooting someone on Fifth Avenue as something he could get away with because he knows that he wouldn't shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. He would like arrange for a drone strike that's something, <laughs> something with, you know, through 12 intermediaries and it would go through the, the bullet would go through the Cayman Islands, right, you know, right, totally. <laughs> LLCs, yeah. but somehow you parsed it. And mainly you're asking the question of what would a post post-presidency prosecution look like or what should it look like of Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah. And and just kind of grappling with the question of, you know, what are the costs of doing it and what are the costs of not doing it? Because, you know, they're both they're both pretty serious. You know, what I wanted to do was both kind of do two two things at once. One was to just kind of look back at his presidency and just through this lens, through this lens basically of kind of self-compounding legal liability. Like one, you know, one potentially criminal act kind of leads to another. I mean, obstructing justice to avoid an investigation into possible campaign finance crimes, you know, and then as his term is winding down and he needs to get reelected, there is the possible bribery with uh, Ukraine and Mm -hmm. to try to dig up dirt on Joe Biden. And then, you know, after that fails, 
There are the Hatch Act violations, the using the White House as a as kind of a prop for the Republican National Committee and really turning the whole government into, into a kind of tool for his campaign, his 2020 campaign. So I wanted to kind of do that, retell that story through that particular lens. And the lens, I just want to spend a second on the lens. You say, what if we thought of, and I, I just thought this was, I mean, phrasing that it was perfect. You say, what if we thought about his criminality or his potential criminality as a whole through line to connect his life as a businessman into politics and then across his four years as president? And I think that is, A, an interesting, compelling, and I think accurate way to describe it, and B, speaks to how he might be prosecuted. Because we've usually thought of the state charges, so the ones for which he can't be pardoned, as pertinent only to his life as a businessman right? and his acts as a businessman. And then the federal charges, which are dicier, he can possibly preemptively pardon himself. He also, it would also require all kinds of political stickiness with Joe Biden. But if you saw those crimes that he committed in office or seems to have committed in office as consistent with his business life, then maybe you have something, a more coherent prosecution or at least a more coherent way of conceiving of this. So this framework is incredibly powerful that you've supplied in the piece. That's right. I mean, if you think, you know, you have to remember, like, go back to when he ran for president, you know, basically it was to to build his brand, right? It was like he was... Yeah. It was basically to address his financial problems and in some ways his legal problems that he was already having back then with the the Trump University lawsuit was happening. You know, and then during the campaign, you know, he immediately seems to have committed campaign finance crimes. And then, you know, it it is sort of a seamless kind of movement from one sort of phase of his life to the next. And it's so easy to trace through his whole career this kind of attitude toward the law that that he just brought with him to the White House and suddenly had all this power at his disposal and all this impunity. I don't know what it says of his de facto unexpressed ideology or his policies or his racism, but if you tell the story through the lens of simply the lens of corruption, then it becomes somewhat different than the story of the rise of a populist demagogue. You know, I like that you sort of sidelined the one question, the political question in favor of just this corruption question. But we know that that's impossible to do, at least in the minds of an imagined grand jury or jury or people who need to continue to invest in American democracy. So let me try to rephrase that. Jack Goldsmith was on the show recently. He has this new book, After Trump, and he was he's written it with Bob Bauer. And he said that he and Bauer disagreed about this question of whether Trump should be prosecuted when he leaves office. Yeah. And you spell out the arguments for both sides, a vexed phrase. But tell me the case for prosecuting him after he leaves office on federal crimes. Yeah. I mean, the case for prosecuting him is almost more straightforward than the case for not prosecuting him. I mean, it's basically the precedent that you set if you allow i mean we've had we've had presidents of course abuse their authority before but you know never never trump was just a change in degree and kind both i mean he abused his authority and quite possibly violated the law flagrantly over and over again 
and also just to advance his own personal interests. So, you know, with Reagan, with George W. Bush and the war on terror, I mean, you have likely abuses of power that were quite likely illegal as well. But those were done at least kind of in the name of national security. The things that Donald Trump has done were just purely for his own personal enrichment, to protect himself, to remain in office, to hold on to power. So, you know, if you don't prosecute for those crimes, I mean, what kind of message is that sending to future presidents? And even just beyond that, you know, it's a cliche, but this is a nation that sort of believes that no one's above the law. And I mean, what a what a kind of clear signal that actually you don't have to observe the rule of law in this country if you're powerful and then to not prosecute him. So it, it does seem like you know, just from the point of view of precedent setting and just clearly sending a message about the fundamental ideal of this country, you kind of have to prosecute him. That sounds absolutely right. I think I've mentioned on this show before, and I want to tell you about my new NGO called DontMoveOn.org. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Right? Don't move on. I've listened to the Ford speech about mercy and how much Richard Nixon has already been through and how we need to let it go. Then I always think of Justice Scalia saying whenever someone brought up Bush v. Gore, move on, right? Yeah. And you guys are just so hung up on this. You know, there's also a never again approach to, you know, to crimes that's not like it's classier to move on, but that we must learn from this so we never have a president like Trump again. And that seems to undo or address the gaslighting that we've seen around the Mueller report and around the impeachment. Totally. And, and I think like connected to that, I totally agree with you about move on. I thought about that a lot while I was working on this piece, that phrase. And similarly, like the phrase healing, right? It's always, you know, yeah. or two invokes healing, you go back to the Civil War and, and, you know, that was all about the reconciliation with the South was all about healing. And it's, it's like, yeah. why do we define healing as kind of the opposite of justice and accountability? Why, why, why are those two things irreconcilable for some reason? Shouldn't accountability and justice be necessary for healing? Like, shouldn't they be of a piece? Which is another thing I feel like we're always we're always kind of grasping to heal and to reconcile and never like actually dealing with the stuff that happened. And, you know, it happened too with Obama and Bush, you know, when Obama chose not to do any investigations or prosecutions for the torture stuff and the black sites and all that. I mean, it's the same, yeah. it's the same impulse. We're turning the page. We're, you know, it's always, we're turning the page, but it's like, it's a terrible metaphor, but can you heal when the wound is still all dirty and bloody? Like, you don't want that wound to heal. It's going to be infected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or when someone stabbed you and you, and you somehow <laughs> exactly. need some redress yeah. there. Yeah. So what are some examples? Because there are those efforts after Nixon or after Bush v. Gore. Um, there's another example. I mean, moveon.org was founded by Democrats wanting to move on from Bill Clinton's transgressions also. So, yeah. you know, it goes in all directions. I mean, honestly, the Civil War is a really great example of this. It's, it's like going way back, but it was the same impulse. It was the idea that we have to like bind up the nation's wounds. We have to reunite the South and the, the North. They were honor, honorable soldiers, honorable generals. The impulse to sort of move the nation past that trauma was in the end what led to failed reconstruction and, and a lot of problems that we're still living with today. Yeah. And then also the seething that you get on the part of the party that pretends that it's all okay, like Japan with the United States. And that doesn't seem to end well, but what are the alternatives? I mean, this goes out of your piece, but I know there's Nuremberg, there's Truth and Reconciliation, there are 
I think something about what happened to resolve the troubles in Ireland has a little bit of like a series of kind of packs that are kind of provisional, but there, you know, there's like a constant invitation to the other party to make amends. Yeah, no, I mean, in South Africa, you had with truth and reconciliation, you had all these people testifying with prosecutorial immunity about all these horrible things they had done. Yeah. So it's also like, I don't know, is that, does that work? I mean, you know, yeah, you're airing everything and, but that's not, I mean, Nuremberg at least is a trial, right? Right. Yeah. Truth and reconciliation. It's just a hearing. It's a sort of a spectacle. I mean, I think one interesting thing to, to think about in all this is like how basically the politics and the law have just gotten so entangled. So it's like, we think that we have to, whatever our solution is to the Donald Trump problem, it has to be like politically palatable, but it's like, what if we just treated the rule of law and the law as just these kind of inviolable set of principles and and rules? And we just, we just honored them and respected them. And we didn't think about anything else. Yes. So it's like with Nixon, what if Ford hadn't considered politics or what he thought the nation needed, but instead was just like, well, this guy broke the law. A few people in his administration are going to prison for for, for a conspiracy that he was part of. Of course he has, he's an unindicted co-conspirator. Of course we have to prosecute him. I mean, why there's no decision even here. Yes. Right. We just think of it that way as well. Yeah. That something has triggered something in the law, like mechanistically that this is just how the world rolls on. Exactly. Exactly. It has to happen. It has to happen. You know, sometimes when journalists say, well, I have to ask, did you commit this crime or whatever, as though like, yeah, the sort of course of human events mandates it. I think that would be a good way to think about it. Sometimes, you know, when Trump got sick with COVID, we had guests on the show and certainly friends and colleagues who say, you know, what if he dies or I can't help hoping he dies. And there's sort of an idea that that poetic justice is as good as justice justice <laughs> right you know that like as long as and i think you bring this up as long as the, we get the fantasy one way or another of donald trump in an orange jumpsuit behind bars and there've been so many kind of chop licking you know bloodthirsty accounts of, and all that yeah 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 but that's obviously an, an impulse apart from the impulse to see just the law roll on totally and i think you know one thing that, that i could see happening, which really honestly might be the most likely scenario, is that Trump ends up getting indicted for insurance fraud or something by Cy Vance in in state court in New York. And that satisfies that desire for, you know, oh, at least he's been indicted. Yeah. But that we won't have dealt with his conduct in office and the federal laws that he may have violated. And that to me is the stuff that really matters. I mean, just treating him as like, um, a, like another white collar criminal who may have committed some insurance fraud or, or, or tax fraud or, or bank mm-hmm. fraud, whatever it is, you know, that just is like wholly apart from of what he did in office, the you know, obstruction of justice, even, even before office with the campaign finance stuff, the possible bribery with Ukraine. I mean, it just seems to me like we have to deal with that as well. Like we can't just pretend that that didn't happen. And I feel like that might be what happens, that that might be the easiest way for federal prosecutors and for the Justice Department to deal with it. It's just like, well, you know, if Vance is going to do something, then we don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely, I've heard 
that many times that, well, don't worry, he'll fall into the hands of the state states. I I don't, and I think there's even like California prosecutions are possible, but I could be wrong about that. Did you see the night manager? Yes. Or read it? Okay, yeah. So you know how at the end of that, and for listeners, it was a series starring Hugh Laurie based on a John le Carre novel. At the end, Hugh Laurie, sorry to give this away, everyone, but at, at the uh, Hugh Laurie is a, possibly about to be sort of nabbed by what the FBI or the CIA or for um, real like crimes against humanity and taken to the Hague and who knows what else. But the kind of hero decides to slide him to some thugs instead because rough justice. Yeah. Yes, exactly. These like Egyptian torturers will, you know, treat him worse. You know, it's just like very clever Lucare, but it also suggests that like there's something lumbering and overly cautious about the rule of law that, you know, yes, why not just get to uh, street justice? You know, that's another possible danger here. I do, you know, you say truth and reconciliation when you give people freedom from prosecution in, in exchange for just telling the truth. I do think that like your piece, the spelling out of all the crimes and even like even hearing Michael Cohen spell out Donald Trump's crimes, hearing, you know, having Bill Barr sit down and, you know, under oath, but free of prosecution, talk about everything he did for the in these cover ups, there would be an extraordinary satisfaction in that spectacle, I think, for people looking on, you know, yeah, I think so. I mean, if you think about the, the the way the impeachment hearings went down, right, it was sort of so many people who who should have been testifying, didn't testify, but but we got the accounts of all these people who had been pressured and yeah. uh, to participate in this campaign, this sort of scheme. And that that was like, you know, that was hugely satisfying for sure. It was. And since so much of this is covering up, it would just be nice to see things uncovered. Yeah. You know, just simply uncovered so you can. And, you know, there's these few examples like the Tim O'Brien net worth case or the Trump University or the Trump Foundation where you just are like that. Yeah, we don't have to say alleged anymore. Right. You know? <laughs> it's just like such a relief. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember yeah. that ha- like with Jeffrey Epstein, you know, you still on a lot of those crimes, you have to say alleged because there yeah. was no justice. Yeah. And that just be or, you know, for a long time with Harvey Weinstein. And that was ju- they, these these things are just frustrating that they they get that protection. Totally. I mean, you look at the like the campaign finance stuff in particular, it just seems oh. like I mean, Michael Cohen is in prison for carrying out this scheme that he was directed to carry out by Donald Trump. And yeah. like, really? he's not going to be prosecuted for that. Like, is that possible that that can happen? Like, I don't really, that's the thing is like on some level, I feel like, well, of course, Biden's DOJ is not going to do it. But then on the other hand, you feel like, can they really just let that stand? I mean, that just seems like that would be just kind of shocking in its own way. The other thing is we're imagining that there are people we haven't heard of, you know, the Neil Katyal types or Noah Feldman, or maybe Bob Bauer, these kind of like overlords of the Constitution and the law who know these kind of things, who might come in and make make the a good decision. I mean, we keep like wanting some like higher source. Well, I mean, you did you you had you said you had Jack Goldsmith on. I mean, he was the one who was kind of urging caution. Bob Bauer was the one who was urging investigation and prosecution. And Bob Bauer is has been a 
legal advisor to the Biden campaign. So right. I don't know if that's going to mean anything, but yeah. Yeah, th- that these are people whose names we probably know who are going to be um, offering advice on this. And, you know, Goldsmith and Bauer are probably the two, you know, are, the, are they give the each side a coherent hearing or the best hearing. Maybe because Goldsmith said that part of the reason he advises more than caution, he, he doesn't think a federal prosecution should happen under Biden of Trump, that he says that he doesn't think there could be a conviction. And he said he thinks obstruction of justice is the biggest one, although he disagrees with the thousand federal prosecutors who say that there's ample evidence to indict Trump indictment. on obstruction of yeah, justice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but he he thinks that's the big one, and he he also thinks that Trump could get out of that, and maybe possibly crimes weren't even committed. So he's he's that conservative on this. But you see things somewhat differently, and what this piece does for the it's suitable for lamination for all of us who don't want to forget any one of Trump's crimes is break down the kinds of crimes, beginning with you have obstruction of justice, but there are also financial crimes and so on. So, do you mind just going through this in detail since you've done this? Sure, it's like we're up, you know, it's like we're at the Seder table here. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> we're, we're to various plagues, financial crimes, um, financial crimes campaign finance, you know, election law crimes, obstruction of justice. There's a category that I refer to as public corruption, which was basically oh, the yeah. bribery or extortion or honest services fraud with, with the, the Ukraine scheme. And then one that I call partisan coercion, which is basically the Hatch Act violations, the using, using his federal office for partisan and political reasons. So it's sort yeah. of five, I broke them down into five categories. So kind of one the financial crimes, you know, before before and outside of his role as president, campaign finance as he's running, and then sort of three sets of crimes committed while in office. Yeah. And I do think in some ways obstruction, it's in some ways the most serious one, right? Because it's truly like the trying to remain unaccountable and, and trying to subvert the, the sort of the few tools we have to hold the president accountable, yeah. trying to interfere with those mechanisms. But you know the one the other thing I kind of tried to do in this piece is I, I did sort of play out the, the like the the different prosecutions and and the challenges of them and you know they all have their own challenges and and you know Jack is is like right like getting a conviction is going to be in all of these cases is difficult for you know for different reasons in each one but generally it, it they have to do with the power of the president to kind of do whatever he wants so with obstruction of justice well if you believe that. Um, you know, obstructing justice is interfering with the, the administration of justice. And if you believe that the president, I mean, you know, pretty undisputably, indisputably is the, you know, the ultimate authority on the administration of justice, it becomes difficult to make the case that he obstructed the administration of justice when he's the ultimate authority on justice. So, you know, there are even some kind of extreme legal scholars who would, would argue that, like, actually, by definition, the president can't obstruct justice because mm-hmm. he is he is the administration of justice. Yeah. So I don't think that argument would hold up, but it still is is like it's difficult. And so similarly with with sort of the bribery extortion question in Ukraine, that becomes a big legal challenge because even though it's clear that that he was bribing the president of Ukraine or extorting him or or committing what's called honest services fraud. It's still, he has, the president has so much authority in matters of kind of foreign affairs and foreign diplomacy that he, it it would be very difficult to bring that case to. So it's, and then you start to imagine like 
what does a failed prosecution of Donald Trump look like? And that, you know, again, like you're, you're mixing politics and the law again, but like you start to think like, yikes, the political cost of that and the, the kind of the messiness that would ensue in our country is like, yikes, that is something to be, that you have to be worried about, just practically speaking, right? But the reason that obstruction, I think, comes to mind for for everyone, as and before we get onto the other crimes, is that the Mueller report, even though they chose it, chose not to indict, recommend yeah. indictment, um, it, it spelled it out so totally, well. Totally. Volume um, two of the Mueller report is basically a, like a br- blueprint for prosecuting Donald Trump on obstruction of justice. I mean, it's yes. all right there. Yeah. And, 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 you know, lots speaking of, you know, licking chops, all those federal <laughs> prosecutors who signed that letter by a, a clear message was being sent there. Yeah. Yes. Said <laughs> that, you know, this is a home run, but, and then there are other, you know, you're bringing up Ukraine um, and all the firings and, and intimidation and everything there that qu- ca- would seem to qualify as obstruction of justice. And those weren't even in the Mueller report because that hadn't happened yet. Yeah, totally. So that's why I think, I mean, it would save prosecutors a lot of time on the first, what, 10 um, cases of obstruction if they could just use the Mueller report, but there's still a great deal of anxiety that it would be difficult to prove or difficult to reframe as a crime since we've seen it for the last, you know, at least two years as not a crime when the president does it. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to, you have to convince a jury, you know, like you have to convince a jury. That's a, you know, yeah. How do you do that? 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. I mean, right. And that's, that's just also a weird thing about voting. Like, remember Kellyanne Conway said, well, because all these people voted for him, that means that he can't be guilty of assaulting women or anything else. Like that's the voting for them is basically acting like a jury yourself. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's a, that, and that becomes one of the reasons not to prosecute him, right. Is that, you know, 72 million people are going to be, we're okay with what he, they, they voted for him. They were okay with what he did in office. So, well, you know, I voted for Bill Clinton, and that doesn't mean that I, you know, that wasn't a carte blanche for anything he did, you know. Yeah. But yes, it's certainly being seen this way. Do you remember this moment in the in maybe the first or second debate? I think where second where Biden went to address the audience as he'd done before, you know, about kitchen table issues and yeah. my yeah. this is about my not about our families but about your family, and by then Trump was ready for it and he said, "Ugh, you're being such a politician," <laughs> and you know it was like even moral behavior like. Yeah actually talking to voters about things that affect their lives and health is now framed as like a, just a, a dem an, an affectation of the Democrats, just like the rule of law, you know, just like the constitution. It's just like, yeah, exactly. Like these guys, these are the guys, these, these guys believe in government. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that is also, I think, sort of awake in the land among among Trumpites that, you know, I was thinking that we should just call political correctness constitutional correctness. That like, um, yeah. you know, when you're just like, oh, this PC thing about not torturing people at Gitmo or whatever sounds a lot like, you know, the Constitution is one of those woke artifacts that we're all <laughs> you know, too tedious. 
So obstruction of justice. Oh, yeah. You mentioned um, Edwards, um, John Edwards in, that wasn't an obstruction of justice. Oh, that was a campaign, campaign finance, finance thing. Campaign but finance. it's such a yeah. good story. So let's go to campaign finance. That was a huge black eye for the Justice Department because, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, people probably remember this, but it was, it was like not that different from the Donald Trump situation in that, you know, he had a, had a mistress who, you know, the National Enquirer kind of exposed and he had gotten two of his two sort of wealthy donors had given close to a million dollars to basically to pay her off to keep her you know, it's hush money to keep her kind of out of the, the spotlight during the primary campaign. So after Obama was elected, he was indicted. And, you know, even that was like a major decision because, you know, we, we I talk about this a bit in the piece, but just, you know, we of course have this tradition of, of not, of, of presidents not kind of using, using their authority to, to prosecute political rivals. And Edwards was a rival of Obama's. He had run against him, obviously, in the primary. So, so that was a kind of a major decision. And, um, and then the case, it turned out, was, was not great because, um, in large part, because the two donors who, who had um, you know, paid the hush money one was um, Bunny Mellon, the, the kind of the banking heiress who was 101 years old and she couldn't testify. And the other actually died right before the indictment. So he couldn't testify. And then campaign finance laws are so convoluted and complicated. And so, you know, they just like, they didn't play that well at trial. And of course, you know, Edwards's defense team just was fully exploiting the convoluted nature of the campaign finance laws and was just trying to like kind of twist everything up in knots so that the jury couldn't understand what, it, you know, what was legal and what was illegal to begin with. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, you had a hung jury. I think they hung on, on, all but one of the charges, and then they acquitted him on that one charge, and it dragged on for years. And so then the Justice Department just dropped the case. They didn't. They decided not to recharge him, and that really was had a, a kind of a chilling effect on on future campaign finance prosecutions. And so you can imagine. I mean, now I do think with Trump, the case is actually much stronger because you know you have not just Michael Cohen, but you have the two women. You know, Stormy and McDougal, who have already spoken publicly about what happened. So you have three witnesses right there. We've already seen the canceled checks. Uh, Michael Cohen already presented them to, to Congress. So, you know, we have, we've seen like presumably proof that this scheme happened. And so it does seem like a pretty strong case. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, if you wanted to argue the other side, you say it, it was a relatively small amount of money. So, right, it was like $150,000 in both cases. So, you know, you're going to, are you going to indict the ex president for a few hundred thousand dollars? And, you know, but of course that doesn't matter, right? Like it was, it's more than $25,000 is a felony, punishable right. by up to five years in prison. So yep. it was more than $25,000. And it is like, it is a strong case. Yeah. But also you have to, if you want to put McDougal in the mix, then you have to get into catch and kill and exactly. require yeah. and because there's right, there's no money traded changed hands there, or did it? It did. It just went through third parties. So that so there are like different there are all sorts of different violations that happened here. I didn't yeah. get into all of them, but you know, like one is that it was an illegal corporate contribution because mm. basically American media <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. American media killed, like was paid to kill the story by like a third party company, but by, by like a, by, by an LLC that Michael Cohen set up. Yes, that's right. 
Is this was this essential consulting? Exactly. Before we knew about fraud guarantee, <laughs> exactly. there was essential consulting. We had consulting. essential consulting. And total landscaping. We had the Delaware, the Delaware LLC. Yeah. <laughs> the Delaware LLC. But the um the thing is, you and I are joking about this, which is the natural route. And of course, I want to make a Michael Avenatti joke that I'll yeah. withhold for now. <laughs> but because it becomes so absurd and complex that I can see why a jury would say $150,000, these people are porn actors and porn models and this yep. is all just too ridiculous let's move on and that is um that's like not where you want you know this doesn't go to the destruction of the office of the presidency right. by donald trump right right, right. whereas whereas the point you made before that obstruction kind of does i mean in some ways is yeah. a more direct a more direct line yeah and yet it also is potentially sort of boring to juries um and and there's even a bar you, you can see the structure of a case that a kind of goldsmith or bar might make that of course Trump, right, is it wasn't Barr's argument that Trump was so checkmated by all the by these um, investigations and so stultified in carrying out his duties and implementing policies that that itself was a kind of aggressive partisan way of yeah that this was almost like right and that this was like necessary for him to continue to govern it, it's like oh yeah they yeah, keep yeah, all this at yeah. bay right yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like there's also this this argument that you can't if there's no underlying crime, then then there can't be obstruction. Oh, so gosh. so in other words, if if Donald Trump believed that this there was nothing to this, this that this sort of Russia stuff was just all kind of a witch hunt, was all made up by the Democrats, that he couldn't have been hiding anything. So if there's no underlying crime, you yeah. there can't be obstruction. But that's not Ugh. actually not not true legally speaking, but that's nevertheless like a, a line of argument. No volume one, right. No volume one conviction, no volume two conviction. Oh, yeah. All right. Public corruption. So I, I really like these the silos. Headers. You've yeah. put these things in. I like the headers a lot. Um, all right. Public corruption. So what, tell me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, that is, this is like standard playbook sort of stuff that that we usually see from like local politicians yeah. um you know the little like the kind of the accepting the kickback to award the like city contract the you know this is you know that's this is the the, the small time stuff you see all the time i mean you know rod blagojevich of course like famously tried to sell barack obama's senate seat when, when he got elected okay. um and so like you, you have stuff like that um and that's essentially what what Donald Trump appeared to have done as president is is basically tried to to you know withhold 400 million dollars in military aid that had already been approved by Congress um, from uh, from Ukraine in exchange for for this like bogus investigation into you know into Joe Biden and you know Hunter Biden so it's like you can just see it in that same context right but it's it's also like because it's the president's foreign power it's the president's like power to conduct foreign policy, it mm -hmm. becomes very tricky to try to prosecute. 
And he was acquitted at his impeachment trial for what that's <sighs> worth. <laughs> right. There's that too. Is that called an acquittal? I guess that is. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, it's not a it's not a legal proceeding, but it is referred to as an acquittal. Yeah. So what do you call, um, I see I'm trying to find crimes that are not <laughs> listed here, but you probably will tell me how they fall in to one of these categories. What do you call the sort of shenanigans with Emily Murphy, who's now the kind of bureaucrat who's standing in the way of the trans- Biden's transition team by refusing to acknowledge Biden's victory in the election. So you, yeah, you know this figure. So yeah. didn't she, a couple of years ago, she was part of some plan. She was going to, they were going to, she also sort of oversees government buildings, right? And there was like, they were going to vacate the FBI building on Pennsylvania Avenue and move to the suburbs, right? But, but he, he was worried that a, a competing hotel would move in. Right. A yeah. competing hotel would move into the building and it's close to his post office hotel. So yeah. so it looks like he put pressure on her to to like not let them move, even though this had been long planned so that he could like keep his post office hotel free of competition. This is great. This is like squarely within the public corruption category. And yes. it's um, there's a there's a there's a crime like a statute that's honest services fraud, which is, I think, a, a good there's sort of two that come to mind. That's that's one, which is basically just what it sounds like. It's just just a, any any effort to sort of deprive the uh, con- your constituents of your honest services. And then, of course, there's like conspiracy to defraud the United States, and you know, conspiracy to defraud the United States of whatever service they are, you know, they can expect to to get from you. So, yeah. <laughs> Jonathan Mahler is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Thanks so much for being here, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. What'd you think? Prosecute Trump or not? Come find us on Twitter and give us your answer. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And while you're at it, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.